Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined this week by Madeline Davies, our award-winning Deputy News and Features Editor. She's recently awarded an Awareness Foundation Award for extraordinary work in the Christian media and great courage and integrity. Congratulations, Madeline. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Must be nice to meet the Countess of Wessex who presented yeah, the award. Yeah, unfortunately we were wearing the same dress or uh, one of slightly less monetary value from me. <laughs> did she comment on that? No, the man sitting between us did. Oh, awkward. Awkward. <laughs> sure she didn't mind. On this week's podcast, I'll be talking to Madeline about her visit to the Church of England's most deprived parish in Blackpool, which is what our cover feature is about this week. We'll be talking about the royal wedding a little bit. Also, our editor, Paul Hanley, will be speaking to our new Sunday's Readings columnist, Canon Angus Ritchie, priest in charge of St George in the East and director of the Centre for Theology and Community. They'll be talking about what makes a good sermon and the future of the sermon. If you're racking your brains for Christmas gift ideas, why not buy someone you love a gift subscription to the Church Times? They'll receive the paper in the post every week for the whole of 2018, full access to our website and 150-year digital archive, the Church Times app for iPhone and iPad, and a choice of one of three books, The Splash of Words by Mark Oakley, Parable and Paradox by Malcolm Geith, or Forever Wormingford by Ronald Blythe. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash Christmas to find out more. First, St Peter's South Shore in Blackpool is the most deprived parish in the Church of England. That's according to the Church Urban Fund. Madeline has written this week's cover feature about her visit to the parish recently. Madeline, can you just tell us how this idea came about? Yeah, I was putting together um, a feature on the future of the parish shortly before we had our debate with St Melitus um, on whether the parish had had its day. And one of the statistics I was looking at is um, deprivation, which is something which the Church Urban Fund measures. And I found that um, St Peter's in South Shore in Blackpool um, was judged to be the most deprived parish. Um, There's another one I'll talk about a bit later in Essex, which was um, judged to be one of the least deprived. Mm. Um, And I thought it would be a good idea to go up, um, meet the vicar up there, and find out how the church responds in an area with um, so much material deprivation. What were some of those indicators of of deprivation? So they measure statistics such as the percentage of children who live in poverty. Um, So in this parish it's 61%. The national average is 19%, um, so you know, nearly three times as high. Um, They also measure things like life expectancy. Um, And I found that the life expectancy for men um, in the parish is 68 Um, which is 11 years below the national average and actually 25 below um, that in one London parish. Um, So a huge divide there. One of the people who really features in the piece is the vicar of the church, the Reverend Tracy Charnock. Can you tell us more about her and and what it was like to meet her? She's doing an amazing job, I think, in the parish. Um, She's always served in urban priority areas. And um, when I talked about her plans, she's very committed um, to continuing to work in areas um, such as South Shore. One of the things that she um, runs is what I attended the morning that I arrived in the parish on Friday, which is a sort of drop-in um, where people who need benefits advice um, or food um, or just company um, are able to come along to the church um, and receive that. And there are various um, community groups there who they can sort of be referred to, including people from the council that might be able to give them some sort of further advice. But she really kind of matches up that social outreach um, with preaching and with mission. Um, So there's an invite as well to people um, who might want to be baptised if they've not been baptised or confirmed or anointed with oil. So so it's really kind of combining what um, the Bishop of Burnley's talked about in terms of service and proclamation. Hmm. And I thought she'd kind of married those those two things together really well. 
So this is a real life example. I mean, how was she finding? Did she say it's very tough at times as well? I think what she wanted to get across, I think if you're the vicar of somewhere like that, there's probably a slight concern that someone from the Church Times is going to turn up and write a sort of It's Grim Up North article. Or quite patronising. Yeah, and she really wanted to get across sort of how much joy there is. So Mm. when we were um, having our interview um, in one of the pews, you could hear so much laughter coming from the drop-in through the glass doors at the back. Um, So it's sort of much more complicated than just saying... You know, there's all this material deprivation, isn't it terrible? There's also sort of so much community and, and the way that people care for each other is actually really moving. So um, I got the impression that she just really loves her job. And she's worked in inner city Manchester before, but I think she told you that she hadn't seen any, any poverty like this that, she, that she's seen in Blackpool. Yeah, so um, one of the things that's quite distinctive about this parish is that um, properties that were once guest houses, um, when tourism at Blackpool was at its peak, um, are quite run down and they've been converted into what are called houses of multiple occupation. Um, So you get people um, often with problems including um, alcohol and drug dependency um, living in these quite run down properties, um, often by landlords which don't care for them as they should do. Um, so the council's managed to introduce something called selective licensing where they can um, make the conditions for being able to be a landlord much tougher um, and Tracy had accompanied the council on some of the visits to some of these um, houses of multiple occupation um, and she did say that she'd never encountered anything like that level of poverty um, even sort of places without any running water um, without any heating and you talk in the piece about Blackpool Council's plans for development, for, for making this a great tourist destination again. I mean, what, what do people in the church think of that? Um, I think there were sort of mixed views. Um, many of the people of the congregation were older and could remember um, when, when Blackpool had been really thriving and, and also including the parish, so the streets around, which, which now, to be honest, do look quite dispiriting, um, had been really bustling. There's a, there's a street there called Bond Street, which was named after the sort of famous one in central London. And it had been sort of a place where you went to really posh shops. Uh, I think there were four banks on it at one point. Um, so they could remember the heyday. Um, and, and some sort of felt that that could be um, kind of returned to and others felt that it couldn't be like it was before. Um, I think with people now being able to go abroad um, quite cheaply um, with motorways that mean you don't necessarily have to stay overnight somewhere like Blackpool, um, kind of questioning whether it's possible to return to that sort of 50s heyday. And you also talk about how Blackpool is on the receiving end of a lot of the austerity and, and the cuts. Yeah, so um, some of the figures which were published by the Labour Party last year um, highlighted how um, the kind of change in spending power per person since um, 2011 um, were 566, um, which is compared to a national average of 169. So the amount that the council can spend per person um, has really kind of significantly declined. Um, It's also ranked as the most deprived local authority in England. sort of I guess sort of one of the things which slightly balances that is that you can apply to this government coastal communities fund um, so the council received 2.9 million towards a new conference centre um, so I think the government does recognise that Blackpool's not alone sort of many seaside areas are affected by some of these problems and you can apply to this fund um, if you have regeneration ideas. You also spoke to Canon Dick Cartmel, who's a, quite a campaigner with, with the Labour Party. So I clergy addressing some of the, what they see as the structural issues as well as just the yeah, symptoms. Yeah, so he was um, sort of Tracy's predecessor, oh, right. um, remembered very fondly in the parish. And he's now a volunteer with Together Lancashire, which is um, a sort of church urban fund project. Probably the most political person I, uh, I sort of interviewed around the parish. Um, and he sort of described the church as being um, insufficiently politically acute 
and kind of um, very open about his Labour Party membership, the fact that he canvasses for the party and really saying you can only kind of um, mend these wounds if you get involved in politics, um, if you engage with the policies which kind of determine the courses of people's lives. He talks about it in your piece about a Westminster researcher who visited who'd never been north of Birmingham. If you stay for a fortnight and walk the streets and just listen to people, you'll begin to realise why they voted Brexit. Yeah, so um, this this person who's sort of come up, I think, just for the day, has never been further north than Birmingham, um, he mentioned. Um, and I think um, it kind of feeds into that narrative, which I think we've, we've talked about before at the paper, about um, a sort of a north-south divide. And some of the um, factors which perhaps gave rise to the Leave vote, um, Blackpool was, you know, a high Leave um, result in the referendum. Um, And I guess um, he would be suggesting that um, perhaps if people in Westminster were more familiar with some of the challenges um, in coastal communities over the north, um, they would have been less surprised about the result. It's also worth mentioning a comment piece we've got this week by an ordinand at Cranmer Hall in Durham, Anne-Marie Naylor. And she's really addressing Bishop North's previous challenge to people to minister in the in more deprived parts of the country and not just go for the kind of low hanging fruit, comfortable options. Um, and it's a very interesting piece because it's quite um, it's very self aware and really trying to explore her reluctance. Very honest, I think, exploring her reluctance to go to areas that are difficult and deprived. And, and she lists things like. Would her children be safe? Would she feel isolated? Mm-hmm. And crucially, she says that ordinands really need to have a chance while training to explore these issues and mm-hmm. to access the kind of resources they'd need to feel supported. Yeah, it was quite interesting. One of the people that I met when I was up in um, St Peter's was the um, Church Experience Ministry Scheme mm. um, guy. Who was, I think he was only about 19, um, but really interested in ordination. And he'd been um, sent to the parish um, to find out more about what that might look like. Um, Another thing I've kind of been thinking about is, I don't know if people are watching, but um, Howard's End is being screened at the moment. And I think that raises a lot of questions as well about um, how more middle class people interact with um, people from poorer backgrounds or working class backgrounds, whether they regard them as a project, um, whether they meddle or whether they kind of genuinely want to enter into relationships and become part of communities. So I was kind of reflecting on that as well, sort of coming back from my visit. One of the things that Canon Cartmel said, which I thought was really interesting, was um, that actually we could learn a lot from um, poor people. Um, and he says actually their natural inclination is to be in community. They look after each other, they laugh a lot, they know how to enjoy themselves. And then he says, meanwhile, acquisitive communities tend to build Leylandi trees around their houses. Might also be worth mentioning um, that next week um, I've got a feature where I visited one of the least deprived parishes in the Church of England, um, just to um, contrast it with my last visit and and find out what the church is um, responding to in that sort of environment. This week's brought the news that Prince Harry and the American actress Meghan Markle have got engaged We've got a story in this week's edition. Uh, Many people are delighted and even thrilled. The Archbishop of Canterbury said he was absolutely delighted. And the Archbishop of York tweeted that it was fantabulous news. Yeah, a huge amount of coverage this week. Um, What did you um, sort of uncover that you felt had had less sort of prominent coverage in the papers? One of the things that's perhaps talked about a bit less, but but it was featured in in the interview, which was posted in its, the BBC interview, which was posted in its entirety on YouTube by um, Kensington Palace, I think was the, the level of commitment they share to humanitarian work and charity work and how mm. and they initially bonded over that, over the, the trips they made. And they soon went to Botswana, 
after they um, after they've met and, and the relationship kind of evolved from there. And she said in the in the interview with the BBC, that's almost what got him the second date was the fact that he was um, so engaged with these issues. Um, perhaps not the fact she would say that he was a prince. She says it's the fact that he was a nice person and cared about these things. And I think yeah, I think it's important not to be cynical maybe and think that this is a good thing. There are two people so committed to public service who who've obviously fallen in love and, and want to get married and, and all of that, but they also want to use their um, soft power, I suppose, in order to make a difference. I think it's quite significant that their first official engagement is to Nottingham to meet um, people working with people who suffer HIV AIDS and also an organisation working with young people at risk of joining you know, violent gangs and, and committing violent crime. I think, that, I think that shows kind of where their priorities are. Um, and, and Meghan Markle also talks a lot about wanting to get to know some of the smaller organisations um, in the UK and see how they can help. And you, you've seen um, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge um, visiting organisations such as XLP, a Christian organisation working with young people at risk of joining gangs. Uh, they've, I remember they visited another organisation, Only Connecting King's Cross, which works with ex-offenders, um, theatre work and getting them involved in drama. So you can see there's this real commitment and they've got some links definitely to church-run Christian charities. You know, many of those people are the people doing that kind of work. Anything else in this week's paper that's stood out? So we refer on the news pages to the British missionary Ian Squire, um, whose death was confirmed by the Foreign Office last month um, in Nigeria. Um, there's actually an amazing interview in the Daily Telegraph um, the past Saturday um, where they talk to the, the captives who were held alongside him um, and they shared some really moving details such as the fact that he was singing Amazing Grace before he died and, and talked about how these um, health professionals from England had found themselves in this quite remote part um, of Africa um, known to be um, a risky place for people to be, a sort of a risk at kidnapping and how they'd really felt um, called by God to serve them. Um, really amazing interview I'd encourage people to look at. I've been interested by a story coming from the Archbishop's Task Group on Evangelism. They released a book called Evangelism for the Local Church, which we write about in our news pages and the whole of our leader column is is devoted to. Yeah, the booklet's being sent to every diocese with a message from the two archbishops and it's really saying it's not an off-the-shelf programme that guarantees, you know, lots of people in church. But it does talk about this four-stage virtuous circle where you have contact, the initial relationships with people, nurture, intentional investment in specific events to grow that contact, commitment, that's issuing a specific invitation to follow Jesus, and then growth, the development of the faith that has begun. Hello, this is Paul Handley, and I'm talking to Angus Ritchie, um, who is taking over our Sunday's Readings column from um, now. I wanted to ask you um, about preaching, because although the column... um, acts in place of a sermon um, for the readers. We know that it's also um, used by a a lot of um, preachers in their preparation. So do you find preaching easy or difficult or what? It's a good question. I mean, I I enjoy it, which is probably not the same as finding it easy. There's a part of preaching that um, this kind of column and uh, commentaries can help with but then I think another exciting part is thinking well what is the relationship between this set of texts today's liturgy and this particular community right talk me through your sermon preparation a bit do you basically work from the election do you work from the texts yes yes I do so I suppose I'm probably thinking about the this will change now uh, but hitherto I've started to think about the next sermon I'm doing when I finish the previous one so I tend to have something on the boil in some sense 
um, sometimes a few weeks ahead, just beginning to mull over the texts uh, and the congregation I'm usually the one in St George in the East, but the congregation I'm uh, preaching to. So you're holding quite a lot of lecture in your in your head as as you see things coming up. Obviously the big festivals and so on, but sort of Trinity 13 might not leap into your mind. You let the ideas mull over, and then when do you sit down and do you do you write them out? Or? No, no. So they're usually uh, not written, although I'll have a, a a kind of clear structure in my head. My father was uh, a, is a retired Presbyterian minister in the Church of Scotland, and um, uh, that would have been twenty minutes and three points, all mm. alliterating. Um, but I probably kept three points. <laughs> um, so that's still there. Uh, well, I mean, one great help to me is that the. Uh, the, the staff team at the Centre for Theology and Community at our Monday morning staff meeting, the first thing we do is have half an hour of Bible study on uh, the following Sunday's text. Uh-huh. So I think it's always really interesting to, to get a different set of people's perspectives. And actually in the parish, uh, we've just started uh, a fortnightly Bible study group. And it, actually we find it more helpful for the clergy not to be there. Um, but it's very interesting to... To, to hear what members of the congregation have to say uh, in response to encountering the text. Oh, I, like, I like the idea of being helpful for the not being clergy present. There's a temptation for people to, to then want to... Uh, yeah. On the other hand, um, part of your job is to have done the academic work and then to feed that into people who don't have time or the inclination or whatever to do that? Or, or absolutely. Do, you, do you not accept that? No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think, I think what, um, what the clergy can definitely bring, hopefully, is, uh, is um, among other things, is that, um, that academic knowledge. But often, actually, it would be quite revealing what... It may be that there are members of the congregation who, actually, who have lives which stand closer in some ways to characters in the story. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if the aim of the sermon is to help this congregation to make sense of this word, right. um, then there are, yeah, there are different kinds of knowledge it's helpful to bring together. Okay, so just finishing the narrative of, of your sermon preparation then. Um, so you don't write it down. Do you, do you have a, a page of notes or anything? Or do you go into the, into the pulpit naked? <laughs> uh, no, um, the chasubles are very pleasant at St George in the East uh, but uh, no I, I will uh, probably by Friday having been thinking about it for a while having read some commentaries having uh, had at least one um, group of people um, discussing it um, I, I will I will by Friday or Saturday have worked out what I'm going to say okay um, but um, and you keep that in your mind you don't write anything down yeah okay Okay. I mean, I think the, the 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 most interesting part of all that is is the consultation. I mean, I don't think I can't think of any any clergy of my knowledge who have that um, opportunity to, or possibly quite a lot of them willingness to discuss um, in depth the, the the passages that they're going to be preaching on. Um, and do do you get any comeback from the people afterwards and say, well? We told you on Monday that this was about that. <laughs> no, to, I mean, to be fair, so, so most of the centre staff who have actually been in Bible study with would be worshipping somewhere else. Uh-huh. 
Um, so but I haven't yet. The new the Bible study in the parish is a relatively new initiative by a number of our lay people. But uh, so, um, but I do tend to ask them what you know what, what came up because it's just it is. I mean, in the same way as I think parish visiting is quite for me quite an important part of um, preparation for preaching is that, that being in in conversations with people where you you kind of get a sense of who they are and what they are likely to be bringing. Uh, when they come and hear this, I think I think having a sense of and what people's reaction to hearing the text is before you stand up and say anything about it is um, is really helpful because that's where the sermon I suppose is different from a lecture. Um, you're helping this community to think about what this word means uh, for them now. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, what's what's going to be interesting in the next? This isn't a question; it's an observation. Really, is is over the next few months you're going to be writing an article rather than preaching a sermon. So you won't get the feedback. Um, you won't be writing about a particular or to a particular congregational audience in a way. Yes. Um, might not necessarily be getting that feedback, though. Of course, um, your editors will come. I might get more feedback in some ways. <laughs> not necessarily helpful. <laughs> Very honest, it will be. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think that's good. That, that's mm. one of the things that that um, we think that our, column, our columnists enjoy is, is exploring that aspect of, of things. And sometimes it takes a, a a few weeks to get to find their voice, but nonetheless, even the exploration of that is quite interesting. Yes, it is going to be a very different experience. Well, it is already mm. having having gone to write them a different experience from writing out a sermon mm. on the mm. rare occasions when I do that. Okay, what what's happening to your? I suppose your your theology, but in specific because that's too big a question. But in relation to your preaching, um, is over the, the recent months and years is is your preaching becoming more? Definite, more nuanced. Is it becoming? Um, are you getting better at it? What? What? What's? What, what's that happening? Would, perhaps you should go to the Bible study group and <laughs> ask them when they meet in yeah. the pub. Well, yeah. What's um, happening to the, your preaching um, at the moment? I suppose something I'm quite trying to be mindful of is uh, the different kinds of sermons people might 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 need. I think. Um, you know, I think there are there are perhaps certain kinds of sermon each individual preacher is more drawn to, um, you know, whether it's um, about practical application in what the church does together beyond the walls of the building, mm -hmm. or whether it's about connecting with the liturgy, or whether it's about the individual pastoral lives of people, or whether it's about the light it might cast on their prayer lives. And I think one thing I'm trying to do is is sort of look back over a period and think, well, is the balance of kinds of insight I draw out of uh, this set of texts at uh, the balance that this community needs mm -hmm. okay. so there's, there's, there's a, a as I would expect from you I think there's a practical application somewhere uh, in, in, in the mix yes yes uh, and I'm really struck by the, the congregation's probably heard this a few times um, you know the the common worship responses to the gospel um, are, you know, praise to you, glory to you. There's a sense in which we expect the, the process to be one in which people encounter the Lord um, mm. rather than one in which they 
Lorna said, of ed- edifying facts. I mean, the edifying facts may be helpful in encountering right. the Lord. I'm not, uh, and, and that is, uh, as you said, one of the things you'd um, hope the preacher would bring. But but the point of this is to help people to l- live out their discipleship. Okay, um, finally, um, what about the future? Are you one of these people who think the sermon is just a, a strange beast that we've inherited from the past and, and really can't last much longer? Or do you think there's a place for it and, and, and a future for it? Very much, uh, I think there's a, a place and a future for it. I probably would want to say two things about that. I mean, one is, if, if churches have lost confidence in the notion that what they're essentially about is something which is interesting and people ought to be interested in, that's likely to be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So um, the idea that if you if you don't take preaching in, in quality and indeed relative, I mean, up, up to a point length, mm-hmm. um, I think, if your sort of idea is that this needs to be gone over with as quickly as possible because people aren't really interested, well, I mean, they could just stay in bed. There's got to be a sense that there is something you believe is of value about the liturgy and the encounter with the word. So in that sense, very much, I think there's a future to sermons. So the only qualification would be that I think people do learn in different ways. Um, and so for some people, listening to someone preaching is very helpful. Um, for other people, actually, it might be um, more in the context of conversation. And then thinking about, well, how, how would you have a conversation where you still had an opportunity for the insights that scholarship has to cast on, on this text? That, that's, I think, quite an interesting question. How, how do you do that uh, in a way that brings that kind of knowledge to the table? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode And thanks for listening.